0: This is one of my favorite services of the year for lots of reasons. One of them is because generally it's a time when families can gather together. It's also a time when I get to see you in red and green and you look so nice and beautiful and there's such an anticipation in the air. And it's a family service so... If your kids are talking or they cry, that's okay. Don't worry about it. We're all here together and that's what Christmas Eve is all about. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about Christmas and everybody is invited. As most of you know that are studiers of the scripture, we have four accounts in the Bible of the life of Jesus. They include the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Interesting enough, they are very similar, but they're not identical. And during two of the accounts of the life of Jesus, they don't say anything about his birth in Mark and John, but in Matthew and Luke, they do. And Luke begins with a conversation with an angel talking to Jesus' cousin's mother, letting her know what's going on, and then later on records a conversation with an angel that has with Mary... As she agrees to the plans that God has, and then there's Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's is unique, even though it's a story, it doesn't start out with a story. it starts out with a genealogy. And I recognize that if we were choosing things to read in the Bible, that that might not be the most interesting thing. But Matthew starts with a genealogy of Jesus. In fact, if you start reading in Matthew, you get it. A couple of verses in, and if you don't know what's going to happen, you can get to the point where you might just think, I don't know any of these people. Why should I continue reading? But eventually, Matthew gets to the Christmas story. But here's the way that it starts out for us. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then Matthew goes on and on and on and on, describing the genealogy from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And, and at Christmas time, you'd look at this and you begin to wonder why is he doing this? Why would he approach it this way? And I want to give you a couple of reasons. First of all, Matthew, in writing his story, in writing his account of Jesus, is writing specifically to a Jewish audience, and he's about to make the case that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the first question a Jewish person who is reading this account would say is, wait, before I get into this, is Jesus related to David? Because if he's not related to David, then I can't take anything in your story seriously. Because God promised us that David would have a descendant on the throne. And if there's going to be a physical, literal Messiah, he's got to be related to David. And Matthew, knowing this, is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he starts his Christmas story by saying, let me answer the big question first. Who is Jesus Christ? Ultimately, related to. So he gives a genealogy. But in Matthew's genealogy, he does something that is very, very unusual. And frankly, it's a little bit strange. Genealogies are always about the bloodline of the father. And so you would consider a genealogy to be all men. Because it was the bloodline of the father that mattered to the bloodline of the son. And so normally in a genealogy, there wouldn't be any women's names listed. And that was the point, is how does Jesus relate to the father to the bloodline of David. But in Matthew's account, in the listing of the genealogy of Jesus, he throws in women's names, four of them to be exact, And not only does he throw in these four women's names into the genealogy, he seems to pause when he does so and emphasize women that if you were writing this story and if I were writing this story, we certainly would not include in the genealogy. We would want to leave them out. Three of the four women that he lists in his genealogy are not even Jewish. And then he goes out of his way to say, oh, by the way, There is mixed blood in the line of Jesus. It's not even a pure bloodline. And because his point is that Jesus is from a divine lineage and that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, he seems to go and do everything he can to disrupt the flow of the genealogy that would prove that Christ is the Messiah. And so as he's writing his story... It reads something like this, and if you have your Bibles and you want to look in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to take a look at some of these verses. Here's how it starts in Matthew 1, 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and then here's the first woman, whose mother was Tamar. So instantly, Matthew includes in a genealogy a woman, and not just any woman. This woman is Tamar. Now, I don't know how many of you know the story of Tamar, but let me just tell you. There are some verses of Tamar's story in Genesis chapter 38 that I would not read in public in church. This is not the story that I would be adding into this. In fact, I have just assured that many of you are going to go home and read Genesis 38 let me just tell you please put the kids to bed first because you don't want to have to answer any of these questions tonight there's no need to mention tamar why did he just stick with the guys in the storyland? but he 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 pauses and he throws in a woman like tamar and everyone in jewish history that's reading this would stop and go whoa tamar <laughs> that's quite a story and he follows that up in verses 4 and 5. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now there's a great lady to talk about. So he throws this other woman in there, and she's not Jewish either. In fact, Rahab has a nickname. And for those of you who may be church people, you would know she was Rahab the... And you don't even have to say it. In fact, when you get to heaven and you meet Rahab for the first time, you're going to say, oh, you're Rahab the, uh, the woman from the Old Testament. There was no reason for Matthew to bring this up. And again, a Jewish reader is like, whoa. Rahab. I know that story of Rahab. And some of the Jewish husbands might have said, I wonder what Rahab looked like. And they look at their wives and say, it doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't matter. And then you get to verse five. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Finally, a story you could talk about. Ruth. What a good story. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible that's named after Ruth. But Ruth wasn't Jewish. It was just a mixture in the bloodline along the way. In fact, Ruth is from Moab, and I know that the instant I say from Moab, instantly, all of your minds instantly run to the book of Amos, right? Right? No? Okay. For a letter to be written to Jews that would instantly recognize that Ruth wasn't Jewish. In fact, he goes out of his way in the story. To make it kind of odd when you read it. And Ruth's story is a little bit unique as you read it there. It turns out great, but it's just sort of unique. And it starts you thinking, Matthew, you're trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus comes from a divine lineage. And you're trying to connect Jesus to David. Why would you mention Ruth? Why all the off-ramps? Why call any of this into question? And then it really gets crazy. Because as you move on in verse 5, it says this, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, hallelujah, we have arrived at one of the important people in this. But look how it is written in your Bible after this. David was the father of Solomon, and then there's these words, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why didn't Matthew just say, David, father of Solomon, Solomon, father of Rehoboam? No, he stops in the middle of this genealogy and he throws in this intrigue in here and then he doesn't even give her name. But everybody knows. Everybody knows. All he says, Solomon, whose mother had been uriah's wife so for all of you bible scholars what was solomon's mother's name bathsheba almost have to cover your mouth when you say that you see it doesn't take a church person to know that the story of david and bathsheba now there's some intrigue in the bible That could have been taken out of the pages of our papers today, and and, and Matthew makes it worse by not even mentioning her name. He just throws it out there that Solomon's mother was another man's wife, and the readers of the Old Testament history begin to wonder, what is Matthew doing? You see, when we want to think of King David, we want to think of him in, in his righteousness. We don't want to think about his flaws, but... It was like Matthew made a point of pointing out the worst chapter in King David's life and and Matthew is writing it out and he throws it out there for everybody and then he hasn't even started the story yet. This is just the genealogy. And he goes out of his way to create all of this energy and intrigue about the people who make up the genealogy of Jesus. And as I look at this list, I'm thinking, there were any number of women that he could have added to this list, but he didn't. He didn't say anything about Sarah. No mention of Rebecca. Hers would have been a great story to add in there. A wonderful story. There's other women that could have had a positive influence, but no mention of them. No, he goes with Tamar. He goes with Rahab and Ruth and Solomon's mother, who had been... Another man's wife. Why did he do that? Here's why I think he did it. Matthew had just spent three years with Jesus. As he is writing this out, he had just watched Jesus die on the cross. He'd stood next to an empty tomb and knew that Jesus had rose again. Matthew had listened to Jesus as he taught. He knew the kind of people that Jesus would reach out for. And he knew that all of these shady characters and all of their baggage and all of their sin and all of their embarrassing stories, Matthew knew that was the point to the story of Jesus. Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from a genealogy of sinners. And that was okay, because that was the point. Matthew knew firsthand that really what has happened at Christmas time was that it's the story about light coming into darkness, the story of life coming into an environment characterized by death, the story of grace penetrating the boundaries and the walls created by the law, the story of forgiveness coming into a world that only knew condemnation. And another thing that Matthew knew was that it was what motivated him to put all the seedy characters in the genealogy of Jesus. He knew that the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Bathshebas were his kind of people. If he had to lump himself in with a group of people, it would have been with them and not the righteous. You see, Matthew goes on to tell his story. The most embarrassing day of Matthew's life is the first time that he met Jesus. You see, it happened in Capernaum, a little town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And one day Jesus was traveling with some of his disciples and he got to the shore. And as he got there, there was a group of men that were carrying their friend who was paralyzed and they had him on a mat. And when they knew that Jesus was there, they brought their friend to him and placed the mat in front of Jesus and Jesus stands there looking at him. And the reason they did that is because they knew that Jesus had been known to heal people. And Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, because by now there's a crowd gathering around this, he looks at the man who's laying paralyzed on the mat and he says this to him Be of good cheer. Your sins are all forgiven. And the crowd around him begin to gasp. What did he say? And the friends are going, That's not exactly why we brought him here today. We were really hoping for a miracle. And saying that his sins are forgiven, just that, that's, that wasn't what we were hoping for, but the religious leaders that were around instantly jumped on this, and they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins, and if you are saying you can forgive sins, aren't you kind of equating yourself with God? Because if that's the case, that's blasphemy. Jesus hears all the talk going on, and he looks at the man on the mat, and he says, oh, by the way, Have I not told you that I have the authority to forgive sins? And the crowd begins to murmur even more. Here is this man who is equating himself with a power that only God should have. And then just as the crowd begin to hit a fever pitch, Jesus looks at the man before any more drama can take place and he says this. Oh, by the way, why don't you stand up and roll up your mat And take it home with you and your friends. And the man jumps up from the mat. Instantly healed. Rolls up his mat. And takes off running with his friends. And Jesus healed him. And the people that were standing there in that crowd. The crowd began to roar. Because of what they had just seen Jesus do. And moments later. Matthew would be standing eyeball to eyeball. With the savior of the world. For the very first time. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to parties where you had to tell your most embarrassing story. Maybe you don't go to parties like that. Because you don't want to have to share your story. But I have to imagine that this was Matthew's most embarrassing story. Because here's the way he would tell it. You're not going to believe it. Because in Matthew 9, 9, it tells us as Jesus went on from there, immediately after healing this man, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And Matthew tells this story. When I saw Jesus for the first time... The crowd's parting and I see Jesus coming and there's some men that are following him and and he had just told people that he can forgive sins and he'd healed this guy and the the man who was paralyzed just came running by us carrying the mat that he'd been laying on and then as the parts, I'm staring eyeball to eyeball with Jesus and guess what I'm doing? I'm collecting taxes from my people. Why is that so embarrassing? Because the Romans sold the privilege of collecting taxes to Roman citizens. And you could buy a tax-collecting franchise for five years. And in Palestine and Judea, they realized that if you were a Roman and you were collecting taxes from Jewish people, they didn't like you. They might egg your house or steal your donkey. So what they would do is they would sub-franchise to Jewish people who would collect taxes from their own people. And they were hated worse than anyone. So, these collectors could take taxes and gather more than they wanted, and they got to keep the margins, and they got very rich about it. And and so, here is Jesus walking through the crowd. And as a Jewish man, there's nothing you could do that would be more shameful than to be collecting taxes from your own people. Because even the scripture talks about it. And for those of you that are church people and you're familiar with it, it it talks about there are sinners and tax collectors. There are sinners and tax collectors. They had their own category of sin. There's the sinners that are the really bad people, and then there is the tax collectors. And Matthew fit within that category. And this is who Matthew was. He was an embarrassment to his family, his people. He was ostracized from religious life. He couldn't even go to the synagogue, and if they had had the ability for him to listen online then, they would not have given him the passcode to listen. He was so bad. And Jesus walks up and catches him in the tax collector's booth. The picture of righteousness and perfection, holiness personified. It's God in a bod staring Matthew right in the eye. And he's in his life's most embarrassing moment. And in the middle of verse 9, you've got the disciples that are following along with Jesus and Jesus looks at him, and the disciples were probably thinking, oh, there's a tax collector up there. Which one of us is, is going is to throw an elbow at him? Which one of us is going to spit at him? You know, they're tax collectors. We can get away with doing anything to them. And Jesus walks up, and the first words that he has with Matthew in his most, in life's most embarrassing moment is he looks at Matthew and goes, hey, why don't you follow us? Can you imagine the conversation of the disciples about then? Follow us? What are you doing, Jesus? We don't want him to follow us. Don't you know what this is going to do to our movement if you start inviting tax collectors who are below sinners into our movement? What are you, I can't believe you're doing this, Jesus. He says, why don't you follow us? And Jesus probably looked back and said, hey, guys, shh, shh, shh. Peter, don't make me come back there. This is the worst day of Peter's life outside of the crucifixion. And then in the conversation with Peter, he goes on a little bit farther after inviting him to follow him, and he says this to him. Peter's going, great, where are we going? And Jesus says, hey, I thought we'd go to your house. And Peter goes, his house? I can't believe it. You are doing nothing but killing the movement. I, I can't be seen at his house. Jesus looks at him and he said, Hey, follow me. Let's go to your house. And just as Matthew is writing this story out, the story of Jesus and Christmas, he has got to be laughing to himself as he's jotting this down about the reaction of Peter and the disciples to Jesus inviting him. And in verse 10 it says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and let me tell you something, I bet it was a phenomenal meal because Matthew and all of his friends were rich. They just didn't have any friends. So Jesus and the disciples get to go and walk into his house and they're having this great meal. And it says that many tax collectors and sinners, you love that double line there, came and ate with him. Now, across the street from Matthew's house during this time are the righteous people with their picket signs. We hate sinners and tax collectors. And they're just marching back. They cannot believe that Jesus, of all people, would go and have meal with them. And some of the disciples may have been outside at the time, and, and the righteous people from across the street are going, hey, 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 come over here and talk to us, a couple of you. Come, Come over here. And so finally, even though I'm sure they were embarrassed, they kind of wander across the street, and they have a conversation over here with some of these leaders. And here's what they ask them. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And maybe they were embarrassed, so Jesus, it says, steps out of Matthew's house, and he responds this way. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But I go, and, and he says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but Sinners. Now, if this were to happen today, don't you think that Matthew and his friends might be a little bit offended at being called sinners? But they weren't. And you know why? It's because people who are far from God know that they are far from God. People who are not in a relationship that's thriving with the Lord, they know that they're not in a relationship It's thriving. Matthew knew that he was a sinner, and as he's writing a story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here is what he's considering. I know that I'm not righteous. I know that I've done horrible things. I know the kind of person I am. I know that I'm lumped in with the sinners and the tax collectors. I know that I'm sick, and I know that I need a spiritual doctor. And then Jesus says, for I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. In other words, what is the Christmas story all about? It's about a Savior who recognized that it doesn't matter how good we are, we can't get there to Him without help. Matthew understood this better than any of the other gospel writers. He knew that the story of Christmas is specifically about God drawing near to those who had drawn away, about God leaning in to those who had been leaning away from God, about God reaching out to those who, because of the circumstances of their lives or their histories, felt as if they had nothing in common with which they could connect with God on. And Matthew understood that Included in this story, there needed to be people with problems. Included in the story, there needed to be people that recognized that Jesus had to come in the flesh in the first place at Christmas to make a difference. And at the end of Matthew's story, here is what he discovered. For those of you that may be in the back and can't see this, it says what I've done. Matthew knew that there were many people in his day that were standing on the platform that they felt what what they could do to get in contact with God. The platform they stood on was based on what they had done. Lord, I'm better than other people. Even the disciples had had demonstrated that they had an arrogance in their own heart and mind as they were thinking, I don't want to hang around with tax collectors and sinners. And Matthew said... So many people are standing on the platform of, I'm okay with God because here's what I've done. And you know what? It hasn't changed to today. There are people that we talk to all the time who, when you ask them, How is your relationship with God? they say, I'm good because God knows that I'm a good person. God knows that I'm standing on the platform. My connection with God is based on the fact that I'm better than other people, I am not a tax collector or a sinner. I'm not perfect, but you know, hey, I'm better than other people. And as a result of that, there were numbers of people, the righteous people across the street, waving banners of their hatred of the sin-sick people across the street, were standing on a platform that could never get them in connection with God. And Matthew's Christmas story says, I need to point this out. Because this Christmas Eve, the story is not about the platform of what I've done to get God's attention the story is about a savior that came to live among us. And the only platform that we have tonight to be able to connect with God is through his son because it's what he's done for us. Jesus came, God in the flesh, to live and dwell among us. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And Matthew knew as he was writing this story after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus changed all the rules at Christmas. Because now, none of us stand on a platform of what I've done to connect with God. Every one of us stand on the platform of I connect with God the Father through the righteousness of the Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to pay the debt of sin that I could not owe. And so tonight, Christmas Eve... I beg you, abandon the platform that thinks that you have done anything to earn the grace of God. I beg you to abandon that and walk over to the platform that throws yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ the Savior, the Son of God, perfect righteousness that loves you in spite of everything that may have taken place within your life. So Matthew, writing the genealogy, said, (laughs) I've got to throw in Tamar. I've got to throw in Bathsheba. I'm not going to say her name. I'm going to let it, the intrigue of all the Jewish people just go, whoo, because that's the point of the story of Christmas. Why in the world at Christmas time would we focus on this? Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's the point of Christmas. God sent a Savior. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come. And so the genealogy that Matthew gave to launch into the Christmas story is perfect because it highlights He came to be your Savior. He came to be your gift of life. He came to be my sin payment and your sin payment. He came to be the gift of righteousness. He's the bridge to a holy God upon which I stand on the platform that He created. And I come to God and am accepted by God because of the work of Jesus Christ Christ alone. That's why every one of us need what is provided for us at Christmas. Behold a savior is born and he is Christ the Lord. Would you please stand with me? Father God I ask that you would take this simple Christmas message and for those that are here tonight that have been standing on the wrong platform may we view Jesus differently I ask as we prepare ourselves to sing a final Christmas carol and light candles that at this moment we would receive you to be the light and the darkness of our own life. Because maybe we're like Matthew. The point of Christmas is about all the flaws. Because Jesus has come to take us wherever we are and change us because of his righteousness. He's Christ the Lord. Let's worship Jesus.